0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybetemidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the
1: program. Okay, so we'll do the best we can with the clips. If it's challenging, then we can always just skip them. So... An interesting thing happened to me over the course of working on this book. Um, I was interviewing people who had been part of the cast and crew, people who had been writing uh, and directing the show Friends, and the same story kept recurring. People who had been veterans of the show were now mostly in their 50s, and so a lot of them had teenage children, and they would tell me that their teenage son or daughter had discovered a new favorite show called Friends. And they and all their friends at school would be watching it and debating it and discussing who their favorite characters were and their least favorite characters were. And they had no idea that their parents had worked on the show. And so all of these now middle-aged people were so thrilled that they had this newfound cachet with their children by virtue of having worked on a show from 25 years ago. And so, The interesting thing that happened to me is that a few years ago, I wrote a book called Sitcom, which was a history of the American sitcom. And the first, one of the chapters was about friends and I got to watch the show again and think a bit about its craft and talk about it in the context of American television history. And um, I sort of felt like I'd said my piece about it. And then, oh, sorry.
2: And I just want... (laughs) <laughs> and, and
1: so then um, I came across an article in the New York Times a little bit after my book came out, and it was similarly about teenagers in Manhattan um, who were also discovering friends and, and thinking about it and loving it. And I realized that there was a whole new swath of fans of this show, um, many of whom hadn't been born when the show premiered, some of whom hadn't been born when the show went off the air, Um, who had discovered it and I really wanted to tell the story of the show both for people like myself who were around when the show first premiered and for for these newfound fans um, who hadn't been and so I I think it's worth beginning at the beginning and thinking a bit about how the show came about David Crane and Marta Kaufman the show's two creators uh, they had met as students at Brandeis University they were both involved in the musical theater. Um, They were involved in musical theater at Brandeis and they worked together on shows. They worked as actors and directors and they had this shared dream that they were going to move to New York and conquer Broadway together. And they went to New York and they were quite successful, but working in musical theater in, in New York is kind of a niche business. And they realized that you know, being funny and being writers, there was the possibility of trying For television where there was more opportunity and so something sort of unusual happened for them which was that where most writers come out to Los Angeles and they first have to work in a writer's room where they have a boss who tells them what to write and how to write it and kind of makes the final decisions uh, they actually got hired for their own show that they were going to run this was the early 90s and HBO was not yet the HBO that we know and they were, but they were interested in starting to develop some original programming. And they had this, um, this unusual circumstance where they controlled the rights to Universal's film library. So all the films that Universal Studios had ever made. And they wanted to capitalize on that in some fashion and make something out of it. And so they, they came up with this idea where it was going to be a show about the romantic misadventures of a middle-aged divorced book editor. Hot. This is hot stuff. But um, <laughs> but they, they would kind of show the interior life of this character um, by referencing clips from old Universal films. And so the show is called Dream On and it was a fairly notable success for the early 90s. It's one of the first shows that, that really kind of captured people's attention on HBO. Um, but after a couple of years, they got really, really tired of it. It was a lot of work. To work on a show that had just one star there's a lot of work to work on the show that had this whole added extra level of chasing down old clips and figuring out how they would all be put together and so they realized they wanted to try to pitch to the networks and at the time in the 90s the networks were still kind of where the major the majority of the of the television business was happening so they had one go around where they pitched a similar kind of high-concept idea that also involved a character and his inner life and depicting it through these elaborate clips. And they got really burned out from that. And when it was time to start pitching shows in 1994, they had one overarching idea, which was let's keep it really, really simple. We just want to tell a simple story, and we want to do it in a way that's, that's going to be most appealing for us. And so they were thinking about um, having lived in New York, that they were now in their 30s, they were living in Los Angeles, but they were remembering a time about a decade prior when they were still young and setting out um, for a life in New York and a life in the theater and the friends that they had had and, and thinking about what that was like and, and came up with this idea, which was, well, what if we have a story that's just about people in their 20s hanging out together? And it really was not much more complicated than that. That, that was pretty much the entirety of it. And totally unbeknownst to them, at the same time, the president of NBC, Warren Littlefield, had a kind of similar brainstorm where he said, you know, there are all these shows on television that are about families, that are about mom and dad and the kids, and there are all these shows on television that are about middle-aged professionals. They're about doctors, they're about lawyers, they're about teachers, but there's this whole gap in the middle of What happens between being a teenager and suddenly, you know, being a high-flying doctor and That those stories aren't being told on television and wouldn't it be nice to have something more in the way of shows about young people? And I, I know this seems strange given that now pretty much everything on television is about younger people but at the time there was a real fear among network executives the sense that well, who's going to watch a show about young people? Are people who are older than the characters on the show going to tune in to watch this? And there was a real sense that no, you know, no, one, no one wants to watch that, that, that that's too risky. But Warren Littlefield realized that advertisers really wanted to find younger audiences. The younger audiences were more appealing, and that even if you know, a kind of top 10 show that everyone was watching, like Murder, She Wrote, um, had a mostly older audience it was going to be shows with much smaller followings but with followings that had younger audiences that would attract more advertisers so it was good he felt like it was good art and it was also good business at the same time and so this show that eventually would become friends started moving along and initially the thought had been that it was going to take a somewhat different look than it than it ended up taking the initial thought was that they were going to have one primary character and then have five characters surrounding that that protagonist. And the thought was that the main character on the show was going to be what we now know as Monica, that it was going to be a story about a kind of young up and coming chef who's gruff and tough talking and a real New Yorker, but also ultimately very lovable, and that the show was going to be primarily about her and then secondarily about these other people that she knows, her roommate, The people who live across the hall Um, and initially the thought was that the main romantic relationship on the show was going to be between Monica and a kind of young aspiring leading man actor who lived across the hall who they described as being a kind of young Al Pacino type and so the thought was that they were going to have this this slow burn romance between Monica and joey and that that is was where the show was going to focus some of you are laughing because that's not actually what (laughs) happened Um, and and i think one of the interesting aspects of a show like friends is understanding the way that the process of creating a show plays out and the ways in which that changes the initial dynamic that they pictured and so numerous people that i spoke to for the course of this book described the first Uh, the first read, the first time where all six of the the actors that they had cast on the show came together to actually read the pilot script as being a kind of pivotal moment. Because up to that point, you spend all of your time, if you're creating a show, probably in a room similar to this, but smaller and dingier, where you just have 100 or 200 or 500 actors coming in and telling you um, and, and reading lines. And and you don't really know what you're going to get. You do the best you can to cast each role, but you don't really have any sense of, well, how are these performers going to work with each other once they're together? And sometimes it's terrible. Sometimes you cast what seem to be the best people for a role and then they get together and they have no chemistry. And sometimes something different happens. And so what everyone described that first time when, when all the performers were together, was the sense that, okay, this is really going to work. We have something here that's special. And not only that, but that everyone sort of agreed that there was an unusual kind of chemistry between two of the performers. That David Schwimmer, who they'd cast as Ross, and Jennifer Aniston, who they'd cast as Rachel, um, really had something, and and that they needed to rethink what the romantic dynamic was going to be. That, That maybe it would make more sense to kind of work in that direction. But before I get to that, I, I wanna talk a little bit about the casting process as well. So early on, again, like I said, they had this idea in mind for Monica, and the thought was that they really wanted to cast Jeanine Garofalo in the role of Monica. So I, I don't know if all of you remember her, but at, at the time that Friends was being cast, she was kind of at the apex of her fame. She'd just been in a movie called Reality Bites that was kind of about disaffected, Gen X, Uh, 20-somethings, and she was offered the role of Monica, but she she had also been offered a chance to be on Saturday Night Live that same moment. And so she ultimately chose to be on SNL instead. And in kind of casting around to figure out what to do next, the thought was that they knew they wanted to have Courtney Cox on the show. She was ultimately the closest thing to a star from amongst the, the people that were cast. She had been in that Bruce Springsteen video that people might remember. Um, she had been on Family Ties. She had just been in the movie Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, and they told her, you know, we love you. You're great. We're ready to cast you right now. We want you to play the role of Rachel. And she said, you know, I'm so flattered. This is great. I'm, I'm so appreciative. I really think that I'm going to do better in the role of Monica. and. David Crane and Marta Kaufman just kind of agreed, like that clearly makes no sense. She's totally wrong for the role and we don't see it. We're gonna let her come in and read just to be polite, but they told her, you know, it's not gonna work out, but we'll give you the role of Rachel and, and we'll move on. And instead she came in and read and they realized that they were the ones who were wrong and that, that she understood the character of Monica better than they did, and that she had a better sense of what the character was all about. And they instantly agreed and said, yes, we'll have you for Monica. And so the challenges of casting ended up being much more about this, the specifics of how uh, TV series in the era were cast, that oftentimes actors were already designated um, to roles on other shows. And part of the challenge inevitably was f- figuring out which of those shows had any viability and then trying to uh, use some skullduggery to make sure that you got the, the actors that you wanted. And so at the time that they were casting friends, they were looking around for someone to play Chandler. And the first person who came in who caught their attention was Matthew Perry. And they loved him but he was already committed to another show. He was committed to a show, I promise I'm not making this up. It was a show about futuristic baggage handlers at LAX in the year 2294. This is a real show, you can look it up. Um, And so they said, okay, well, we can't have him. He's already cast on this show. Um, And and so that ended up being a lengthy process until someone at NBC finally got a chance to see this show and said, you know what, this show is probably not long for this world. Um, And Matthew Perry ended up being cast in the role. And something similar happened with Jennifer Aniston. They looked at her for Rachel after casting Courtney Cox, and they really liked her, but she was also already cast on a show called Muddling Through on CBS. And where the Matthew Perry show was still in an early phase, Muddling Through had actually already been shot. And so it was ready to appear on air, it just hadn't been on yet. And so they knew, CBS, who had muddling through, knew that NBC wanted her, right? This is the complex spy games of the television business. And so they put the show on over, uh, over the summer in, in the hopes of maybe not letting NBC have her. But NBC had plans of their own as well. Um, at the time, a guy named Preston Beckman worked for NBC. He was their program scheduler. And part of his job was to figure out when the shows that they had would actually appear and so he came up with a plan where he said you know what we have all of these adaptations of danielle steel movies that we've never put on what would happen if we showed every single one of them every saturday night up against this show until we finally got it canceled and so that <laughs> is how jennifer aniston was cast on friends so um, let's try to take a look at a clip from the show, and, and we'll see how it goes. This is from the pilot episode.
2: It, it's not a Wi-Fi problem, is it, it for, for you to get on the screen? Is that the issue? No. no it's just the HDMI that's
3: okay. not working. I can hold the microphone if you like, too. Against Up to the... this.
2: <laughs> and I just want a million dollars. <laughs>
4: Decaf. <laughs> okay, everybody, this is Rachel.
1: There'll be more, don't worry. So, NBC liked what they saw, um, and they put the show on on Thursday nights. And this um, this is a product of a somewhat bygone era where the night that a show was on and the time that a show was on was really important and influential. And NBC had already owned Thursday nights for about a decade with shows like Cheers and The Cosby Show, Seinfeld had just become an enormous hit, and so Friends getting to be on on Thursday night with Seinfeld and with another new show called ER um, was a huge boost, but what it also meant, again, kind of a product of a bygone era of television, was that having enormous ratings, or what at least feels like enormous ratings by contemporary standards, didn't necessarily guarantee that your show was going to stay on the air, that so much of a show's success could be dependent on the kind of backdraft of the shows that led into it, um, that a show had to really work hard to develop its own fan base. And so Friends doesn't really become a huge, huge success until, after its, until towards the end of its first season and afterwards, where I think a lot of people ended up catching up with the show and realizing that it was something a little bit different than a show like Seinfeld or some of the other uh, comedies that were on NBC, in the sense that Yes, Friends was always a comedy, but it also had a soap operatic aspect to it as well, that it had a, a plot line that needed to be followed. It had a kind of uh, emotional through line that people connected with. And so audiences having a chance to catch up with that helped to turn Friends into something of a phenomenon and, and really kind of skyrocketed it to the top of the Nielsen ratings. And I, th- I think it's worth thinking a little bit about how Friends came to be as successful as it did, and also how some of the decisions that were made early on played a part in Friends' continued success, where it's really one of the very, very few shows from the 1990s that audiences still watch and still connect with. And I I think that part of it is is best illustrated by a clip that I'm going to show.
4: Look, well, are you nuts? We got
5: George
4: stuffing up pizza! Mm. <laughs> uh babes who is George Snuffleupagus?
1: Uh, so this is, I think, the third episode from the first season. And, and one of the reasons why it's notable in my mind is that it's one of the very, very few moments where Friends leans on any kind of topical humor. So at the time, George Stephanopoulos was the White House press secretary. He is someone that people would see on television regularly. And I, I always think about this moment in contrast and, and what comes afterwards on Friends in contrast with another show that was quite popular in the 90s, the Larry Sanders show. The so Larry Sandra Show was a show about uh, a kind of uh, fictional late-night talk show host, and pretty much an entire season of the show was devoted to making jokes about O.J. Simpson. So There were jokes about uh, having O.J. on as a guest, and how could we have known he would get so hot, and why didn't we have him on? And And Friends doesn't really do any of that. This is one of the very, very few examples of any kind of joke or storyline that leans on topical humor, or stuff that's in the news. And You look at the entirety of of Friends, it's 10-season run. There's there's no discussion of Bill Clinton or George W. Bush, the presidents who were in office during its run. There's not really any discussion of, you know, think of any major storyline, any major news story from the era, Oklahoma City or 9-11 or Iraq. They don't appear on the show. And I think that Ultimately, that's one of the main reasons why the show is still the success that it is, why it still connects with younger audiences. I think that those jokes work really well in the moment, but they don't necessarily always age very well. And I think also for younger audiences, there's a sense in which those jokes are a kind of unconscious uh, marker that says, this show's not for me. This show is telling jokes about things that happened before I was born, and therefore it doesn't really translate. And that wasn't what they were thinking about at the time. I don't think that David Crane was sitting in that room saying, I wonder what audiences in 2020 are going to find funny from these jokes that we're thinking of in 1994, but rather his his concern was those jokes are too easy. I don't want to have easy jokes, I want to have jokes that make sense for the characters, that are about the characters, that are driven by the characters, that emerge from the characters. And so they did something something interesting. So Crane and Kaufman were in their 30s and they were writing a show about characters in their 20s. And they realized that that was enough of a distinction that they didn't necessarily entirely understand what people in their 20s were like anymore. It was just a little bit too far away. And so they ended up hiring a writing staff that was almost exclusively people in their 20s. And one of the things that they asked from them was to bring in their own lives um, to figure out ways in which the little details of their own lives could be transformed into stories that would work for the characters that they were creating. And so each, each character ended up getting a kind of different subset of those stories. Whenever the writers had a really outlandish idea, um, like what would happen if one of the characters wanted to marry Chinese food uh, they would say, okay, this is clearly a storyline for Phoebe. We're going to give this to her. And when the storylines were more about young guys being really dumb and acting dumb together, those storylines often went to Chandler and Joey. And one of the interesting things for me in talking to the writers was understanding the ways in which they... And, and they, this ended up happening in ways that were unforeseen for them as well, and they couldn't always figure it out, but they they would take little details from their own lives and make it into the show. And so someone would come in and say, you know, I went with my girlfriend to a fancy clothing store yesterday and I was convinced to buy a really, really expensive pair of leather pants for like $600. And everyone was telling me that it looks great, but I'm never, ever, ever going to wear them ever again. And I think for most people, that would just be kind of a funny thing that had happened to them. And there wouldn't really be any thought of, well, how can I transform this into something else? And part of the, the alchemy of Friends and part of the alchemy of what happened in the writer's room was figuring out a way to say, okay, who can this be a storyline for? What will it say about them? And how will it kind of advance the storyline? So a big part of what made Friends the success that it was early on was the relationship between Ross and Rachel. So again, like I was saying before, it was a show that was a comedy, but also very much a kind of romance and soap opera, a show where you tuned in to find out what was going to happen to these characters that you cared about a lot. And Ross and Rachel definitely drove a lot of that viewership, but I think it also was a relationship that had a very specific kind of focus and a limited kind of focus. It was a relationship that was often very uh, petty and had a lot of squabbling and one in which the stories worked much better when they were apart or pining for each other or just outright fighting with each other than when they were together. And so the Friends writers kept thinking of ways to keep them apart, kept it going until the second season before they brought them together and fairly rapidly realized that the storylines of just them being happy together were not working and, and split them up again. And at the same time, there was already the beginning of some early discussion about potentially introducing a second relationship onto the show. And so as early as the second season of the show, someone in the Friends writer's room came in and said, well, what would happen if we had Monica and Chandler get together? And they were pretty much booed out of the room. That's a terrible idea we hate it, we don't want to be a show where we've just paired off all of our characters in increasingly unrealistic combinations, and we're not doing that. And then the fourth season came around, and really the only thing that they knew going into the fourth season was that the show was going to end in London. There was going to be something that would happen in London, they didn't know what it was yet, they hadn't figured out any of the details, but Richard Branson from Virgin Everything had offered to fly out the entire cast and crew as long as he could have a guest appearance on the show. And so they knew, okay, we're gonna go go to London. And the show had an enormous following in Britain, and so they thought it would be a nice thing to, to kind of give British audiences a chance to see the show. So relatively early on in the fourth season, someone came back around to this idea and said, hey, wouldn't it be funny if as a kind of stinger at the very, very end of the last episode, we saw Monica and Chandler in bed together. Great joke, season's over, see you later. Never unlike that, and then they thought about it some more and said, well, if we're already doing that, maybe let's also have a little bit of a storyline where they're freaking out about what happened, where they're panicking about what took place and the mistake they had made, and and that that will be a kind of funny subplot to the episode as well. So everyone agreed to that too. And then, so they ended up filming the last episode of the fourth season something like four times, uh, mostly just as a reward to British audiences so that more, more fans could come and see the show in person so, since this was going to be just a one-time deal. And a, a number of the show's writers and crew came along to help, to help put the final episode together, and they were present when this moment unfolded in front of audiences, and pretty much everyone had the same realization simultaneously. The audience's response was so overwhelmingly uh, favorable, so excited, that all the writers looked at each other and said, oh, we actually have to keep this storyline going. And But even at that point, there was a sense that this was still going to be something that would peter out. OK, so they'll bring the storyline back for the next season they'll have them have some kind of secret relationship, and then it'll, that'll be the end of it. And I think the interesting thing that happened instead was that Friends realized, the Friends writers and the Friends creators realized that this relationship was going to give the show a bit of new life, that it offered a chance at a different kind of relationship than Ross and Rachel had provided or any of the other more fleeting relationships had provided. And I think that part of it was that in as much as the show had started as being a show about life in your 20s, it was starting to become something else a little bit. It wasn't just a show about your first relationship or your first heartbreak. It was, it was transforming into a show that was also about becoming more mature. So we'll take a look at a, a little clip about the Monica Chandler relationship. Your mother's
4: driving me crazy. Ross is getting married and happy.
2: I'm not going to let anything spoil that. I just want to say that Ross. (laughs) Thanks.
4: My God. You must have been a teenager when you had (laughs) him. Oh, my God.
1: I think it's worth noting that, to my mind, so much of what becomes Friends' success emerges from the atmosphere of the writer's room. David Crane and Marta Kaufman were writers themselves, and it was really important to them that every line be just right, that they were never going to settle for a script that was half-baked, or any line that was less than perfect, or an emotional arc that didn't work for them. And so what that meant was that oftentimes Um, everyone would have to work like crazy. Um, Yeah.
2: Did the actors have input or suggestions for storylines and themes also, or is it pretty much just the writers and the writers?
1: They didn't have input for storylines necessarily. I think there were times where they would say about something that the writers had written that this wouldn't work for their character, that their character wouldn't do or say X they weren't necessarily coming up with the plot lines themselves, but they were definitely granted a lot of input in terms of how to present the lines and sometimes to tweak them a little bit. But it was a pretty writerly show in the sense that the the feedback from the writers was usually to say, we're happy to have you do it the way that you want to do it, but first do it our way. Um, but I think that, that especially, well, all of them played some part in, in terms of kind of, doing it their own way and, and kind of putting their own stamp on it. I think Matthew Perry, in particular, was someone who liked to deliver lines in his own fashion. And so the writers learned pretty quickly that where normally they would kind of emphasize a given word like, to know, like, oh, this is the word that you're supposed to hit in this line, they realized that they should never do that for Matthew Perry because whatever they told him, he would just do something else, and he would make it work. So they understood that he was going to make things his own. Um, But yeah, for the most part it was something where the writers really had sway over how it worked. And so when things didn't go well, when when a given line didn't work or a given plot line, once it was actually being played out in front of an audience didn't work properly, um, something actually really interesting happened which was that the writers were called in to pretty much fix it on the spot. And so you have to picture a room where there's something like 800 people sitting and watching a live performance of the show and it stops and the writers gather in front of the stage uh, to write the new lines as it's happening. And I, I think that helps to explain why the filming of a 22 minute show could often take eight hours um, because there was that sense of perfection. And so in talking to the writers, you know, I'm, I was talking to them about something that had happened in their lives 20 or 25 years prior. A lot of them have gone on to enormous success on other shows, created their own shows, been on the staff of other hit shows. And yet, there's something about the experience of having worked on friends that sticks with them. And part of that is getting to work with people like David Crane and Marta Kaufman with their fellow writers and feeling this sense of, I'm essentially at the world's longest ongoing amazing cocktail party where I'm with the funniest people and all we do is try to come up with the best jokes and lines together. The downside of it was that they basically could never go home. You know, that, that the way that the show was set up meant that everyone had to stay until it was finished. And whereas on other shows, you might have a situation where the writers would kind of come up with an idea for, okay, this is what's going to happen in episode 15. You know, you go off and write it and come back and and we'll fix it a little bit. Instead, writers did get a chance to write that first draft, but it was always understood that the actual writing of the show was going to happen in the room. That whatever was written when you went off was just going to be a template to begin with, and that everyone would have to kind of put in their best work to make it happen and to make it perfect. And so writers would tell me that they, one writer told me he came in for his first day as a writer's assistant, which is like the lowest level in the writer's room where you're basically like the person who transcribes what everyone else says. He came in at the usual time, 8.30 or 9 o'clock and went home at 3.45 a.m. And that was pretty standard for how it worked. And that David Crane, Um, would regularly um, pick up his car phone as he was driving home the next morning at something like 6 or 7 a.m., call his now-husband, Jeffrey Cleric, primarily just to stay awake so that he wouldn't crash his car on the way home after working something like a 22-hour day. Um, So I think for the writers, it, it ended up being this really interesting combination where it was this incredible experience that they had of working with these unbelievably gifted people. And at the same time, it felt kind of like a prison cell. It was a place where you could never really go home. And that changes somewhat over time. And and I think that David Crane realized he could still get a lot of really good work out of his writers without having these kinds of hours. But that sense of everyone has to put in 100% no matter what, I think is a big part of what drives the show and and a big part of what makes it feel as well-crafted uh, as it feels, so w- one of the things that people often ask me is is about favorite episodes, and I know that everyone has their own um, their own thoughts on that, but I-, I wanted to show a brief clip from one episode that I really love, which is the one where everybody finds out and the reason why I want to I-, I often pick that episode and why I want to show something from it is that I think it helps to illustrate some of friends' particular strengths, one of which is that it's very much a show about sex and relationships. It's a show about um, these characters' real desire for a connection, but it's also a show that I think likes to mix it up for us in the audience, that where in the, in the moments where the show kind of reaches a certain peak of humor, a certain peak of hilarity, the show is often interested in pulling the rug out from under us and surprising us with some emotion. So let's take a look at this clip.
4: Rachel knows? Yes, but you know what? It doesn't matter who knows what.
2: I yeah. scared. And may I
5: say
1: your breasts are still So I think that part of what Friends does really well is moments just like that, where we're so swept up in this kind of escalating comedy that we momentarily lose track of the drama or of the kind of soap operatic aspects of the show, and then it's able to surprise us with this wellspring of emotion. So Friends, when it was on the air, was an enormous success. Um, It was first in the Nielsen ratings for a number of seasons, never lower than eighth for all 10 of its seasons. And I think the interesting question that emerges, especially given Friends' ongoing success, is could there ever be another show that, that is as successful and as popular as Friends? And I have to say that I think it's somewhat unlikely. Um, When Friends was on the air, there were four networks, one of which was Fox, which was still just kind of getting off the ground. There were a few original cable shows, but really hardly anything of note. And so it was possible for someone who was a television obsessive like myself uh, to basically be aware of everything that was on TV at a given moment. This past year, there was something like 500 original scripted series on television. So that doesn't include uh, talk shows, reality shows. That's just shows that have writers in a writer's room working on writing a story. So there's now an amount of television that no human being, even if they devoted 24 hours a day to the job, could possibly keep up with. And I think what that means is that It's created all sorts of opportunities for wonderful shows that probably could never have been on the air in the 1990s. Shows that were too niche um, or too challenging. Uh, And so it's opened the door for all sorts of of great original comedic programming like Atlanta or Fleabag or BoJack Horseman. But I think that part of it also is that sense of shared um, viewership, that sense of everyone watching the same thing at the same time has dissipated somewhat. So even a show like Game of Thrones, which I think is probably the closest thing to a television phenomenon in recent memory, if you look at the numbers, um, its viewership at its peak was less than half of what Friends was on average. Yeah. Um, No, I I agree with you there as far as the um,
3: exposure that it got. But this, I think it was last year, Rayleigh shows through me was similar to friends and I know when it ended I mean everyone was talking about it all the time even I mean even in Israel and it appeared in Israel so many years before but the people were really upset you oh yeah I know, I've, I've, seen never, seen I've never heard of that oh, oh I was one of the upset yeah. ones and the <laughs> thing that I was always thinking about when I was watching it it was it was like Israeli friends mm-hmm. set in Katamon instead of in, in New York. And it was like people were really devastated when it
1: ended. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's gonna, there's going to be another season of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I think that you're 100% right. And I think that the model that Friends helps to create is one that's pretty flexible and can be reused even for telling the story of you know young religious singles in Israel. Um, uh-huh. But I, I think that it still ends up being the case that just by virtue of the way the television landscape works, that it's unlikely that any one show is going to capture such a large percentage of people's attention. Maybe the closest
2: thing in the last decade was something like the big Bang there, which was number one, it was the phenomena, it lasted until they got tired of doing the ensemble,
1: Yeah, I I think The Big Bang Theory is a good example. I think How I Met Your Mother, those are two shows that kind of adapt the Friends model. Just in terms of the ratings, um, there's just not going to be shows that dominate the ratings the way that Friends and Seinfeld did in the 90s. Um, Those shows were both, The Big Bang Theory has been the number one scripted show on television for quite some time. Its audience is also about half of what Friends was. So it's just, it's a, it's a different landscape. There's a different degree of competition. And I think that it's, it's just inevitable. I, I happen to think that those shows are not as good as Friends was, but I think that even if they were, um, there's just so much more competition. It, you know In 1994, if you wanted to watch TV on a Thursday night, unless you somehow had an extensive collection of VHS tapes, You pretty much were going to watch what was on the air at that point. And that world of television doesn't really exist anymore. And so even if a great show is on, there's so many things that you could watch at any given moment that the likelihood of everyone agreeing to watch one thing has just shrunk pretty dramatically, I think. How is that changing in So just to take a step back to, to help answer that question, you know, when Netflix decided to buy the streaming rights to friends in 2014, I think they paid something like 114 million dollars for it, And everyone's thought was, this is insane. Why are you spending nine figures to buy the rights to a show that you can watch pretty much 24 hours a day without having to do anything? DVD box sets already exist and are everywhere. You could turn on TBS or your local syndicated channels and it's on probably six times a day, if not 10 times a day. Who is the audience going to be for this? And of course Netflix was completely right and while they don't release their their streaming figures, it's pretty clear that the two most popular shows on on Netflix's platform um, far and away outpacing everything else, are friends and the office. So there, there is this overwhelming desire for a certain kind of funny, but also uh, soothing network sitcom. Um, and I think that Netflix in particular has found a whole new audience for this show of people who don't have the DVD box sets and probably don't have a DVD player who probably don't have access to the syndicated show because they probably don't have any kind of television, but who are very, very happy to watch the show and to binge it and to be able to watch it in order and at their leisure and any anytime they want. And so Netflix paid $100 million more to keep Friends for one more year. And the only reason why they didn't agree to pay $100 million a year in perpetuity to keep Friends forever, was because Warner Brothers, which owns the rights to Friends, decided to build an entirely new streaming platform, primarily just so that they could recoup the money from all of the people who want to stream Friends, which is just such an unusual, never-before-seen situation. Most shows from the past don't retain, don't develop new audiences. They retain their audiences from their original run, if they're lucky, a show like Seinfeld or I Love Lucy, you know, people still watch it and love it and enjoy it. It's rare that you develop new audiences after you go off the air. And so I think Friends is one of the very, very unusual examples of that. So to, to come back to your question, so, sorry. Did I was going to ask, so, so how does Netflix recruit that money? I mean,
3: are that many more people getting Netflix subscriptions because
1: Friends is on it, I don't think. So it's... I think that similar, Netflix's model is not dissimilar from HBO's, right? HBO, you could tell yourself, well, why do they need to develop new shows? They already have my money, right? They already get my $10 a month so that I subscribe to HBO. They don't need to spend $100 million to make Game of Thrones. But I think that one of the challenges they always have is they want to make sure to keep you once they have you, and they want to attract new people who maybe were thinking about subscribing or leaning towards it but haven't actually done it by feeling like, oh, there's such an overabundance of things I wanna watch, it's really gonna be worth my while. So for Netflix, clearly they're not, they're not making money specifically off of Friends, but anecdotally, Friends is one of the primary, if not the primary drivers of people actually getting subscriptions. And I think that the reason why Warner Brothers is taking over Friends and creating this new HBO Max platform is that they figure, and maybe they're right and maybe they're wrong, but they figure that millions of people are going to be willing to sign up for HBO Max, in large part just because they want to make sure that they can continue streaming Friends. So there does seem to be a pretty robust business in certain older sitcoms attracting audiences and audiences of people who want to basically have an always on access to those shows. And so I, I think that that's a major part of their business model. Um, yeah?
2: Having watched TV comics my whole life, I think about three items that I've show. One, no audience. Two, laugh traffic. Three, live audience. If you think about it, when I was a child, I had James Thomas. We had all these other TV shows that were live audiences. Friends are live audience. Will and Grace, the live audience. Then they came up with Laugh Track, that was, was in there, but they never really did much. It was so false that people didn't like it. Suddenly they came up with Modern Family, no Laugh Track, and for me, I don't understand it. When I'm watching Will and Grace, when I'm watching Friends, I'm there. I'm part of it, I'm in that audience. But when there's a Laugh Track, it means nothing and Modern Family and all these other ones, black
5: that people love, there's no substance there. There's no softness.
1: There's no you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Am I? You understand my I do. Yeah, I, I think I would say two things to that. One is that I'm not sure. I think that what you're saying in terms of the distinction between the live studio audience and the laugh track is definitely like the party line of shows that use the live studio audience. I'm not sure that I 100% believe them. Um, My suspicion is that they all tweak their laughs to some extent. And they may build off of the actual recording of the audience sitting there watching the show. I don't know that there's such a huge difference between those, at least to my ears. Maybe uh, my ears are just not sensitive enough to the distinctions. I I think that what you're describing is definitely the change that's come over television comedy in the last 20 years. So that if you look at Friends and Seinfeld, they're still devotees of the laugh track, um, and they're part of that last era of the laugh track being, or, or you know, the live studio audience, being kind of the default mode of television comedy. So now, if you look at shows on CBS, they still very much use the live studio audience or the laugh track. Pretty much everywhere else, they've dissipated. I think that's in part because of changes in how the shows are made that a lot of people who write television comedy prefer the single camera model, where it's not shot on like one particular set and where it doesn't have that kind of um, visual look, but rather have it appear a little bit more visually distinctive. So I think that's a big part of it. I think also for a lot of people who are creating comedy shows, there's a feeling that they don't want to spoon feed the audience to quite the same extent, that they want to let the audience figure out what's funny on their own. And and part of that is that a lot of the comedy, like like The Office or shows like that, are very much about creating a sense of discomfort for the audience and having them kind of laugh out of their discomfort. And so I think a laugh track would make it a little bit more comfortable than they want it to be. That said, I think like with anything else, these things go in trends and in waves. And so there's a move now to kind of bring back that live studio audience feel. So I don't know if you've seen the show One Day at a Time, which was on Netflix, and now it's gonna be on another channel called Pop. Um, And it's, it's very much an attempt to revitalize the live studio audience laugh track feel for the 21st century. So it clearly takes place, it's clearly shot on a soundstage, you clearly hear the audience laughing and applauding and responding. But at the same time, it's an attempt to kind of revitalize it for the 21st century. It's a reboot of a show from the 70s, but it's now a show about a Hispanic family and it's very much about current affairs and today's issues. And so I I had always assumed that there could never be another show with a live studio audience or laugh track that would be compelling. And One Day at a Time, to my mind, has very much proved that wrong as a show that's figured out a way to make it Usable for, for a contemporary audience. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, well,
3: I loved Friends. I mean, it was, other than Feinfeld, I loved it a lot. But there is a, um, a Jewish aspect to, to the show, and it's not always a positive aspect. You know, when Rachel is first introduced, she's introduced as the spoiled, uh, you know, daddy's little girl, you know, the girl that, was, you know, that gets everything. And Ross is kind of a whiny, you know, kind of, you know, nerdy kind of guy very stereotypical,
1: you know, Jews, so, you know, can, can you speak to...? Yeah, so, so, David Crane, Marta Kaufman, and Kevin Bright, all three of the show's creators are themselves Jewish, and um, I, I think that, I think that they were drawing on that experience to some extent, but it, it is, I, I think that you're right that the show is less explicitly Jewish than a show like Seinfeld. I think that part of that has to do with the way the, show, the two shows relate to New York. Seinfeld is a show that, that takes place in a, a, a... Neither of them are realistic, right? But Seinfeld takes place in a version of New York that's filled with New York kind of people and New York kind of characters, and a lot of its energy feels very Jewish, that you know, people are having arguments about what kind of babka is the best. And even the characters that are that are explicitly supposed to not be Jewish, it doesn't, it's not entirely believable, right? Like George Costanza and his family, they're a bunch of Jews, whether they want to call them Italians or not. Friends, I think, is a little bit different. So the official word from the show's creators is that the character of Rachel is supposed to be Jewish, and the characters of Ross and Monica are supposed to be half Jewish. Um, my sense is that the show primarily treats Jewishness as something that's a product of the past and the suburbs and an older generation. So whenever the parents come into town, there's this very heavy Jewish energy that suddenly emerges, usually with the character's parents. Um, When they talk about the past or when they have these episodes that are set in the past, everyone suddenly feels much more Jewish. And so I think part of what the show is depicting, I don't think it's necessarily conscious or something that that the creators had in mind, but this sense that Judaism kind of happens somewhere else. Like You get to the big city. You're having a fun time. You don't, need to, you don't need all that stuff anymore. And it still pops out occasionally. You have the episode where Ross suddenly freaks out that his son is growing up celebrating Christmas and doesn't know anything about his Jewish heritage and decides that he's going to give him this crash course in, in Hanukkah. Um, and of course realizes that he doesn't actually know anything about Hanukkah himself and doesn't do a very good job of explaining it. But I think that there's this kind of unstated sense that, that Judaism is like the thing that takes place when you're 10 and you live in the suburbs, but once you arrive, it's, it's no longer relevant.
5: Yeah.
2: yeah I'm wondering if Kaufman and Ukraine, um, since they were single, young men living in New York after college, if a lot of the episodes that they ended up writing or directing were things that happened in their life or things that they observed among their single friends?
1: Yeah, I I think that was the general draw of it. Um, My sense is that the show is less explicitly autobiographical in terms of being drawn from their own experiences than it is from the experiences of the writing staff. And they were pretty self-conscious about that in the sense that they felt like, not that they were old per se, but that they were older than their characters. And they felt like if they drew too much on what they had experienced, it would feel out of date. And so they did a lot of research in terms of finding out, well, what's it like to be 22 in 1994, as opposed to 1982? Um, And they, they asked, the the writers on the staff to think of ways to kind of bring in their own experiences. So my sense is that the overall scope of the show is very much autobiographical in the sense that it's about their group of friends, Um, but the specifics, I think, are mostly drawn from the writers. Mm -hmm.
4: So meaning, so specifically, like when Ross's first wife came out as gay, you know, and like Phoebe didn't have a good relationship with her father
1: things like that are for writers? I mean, not all of it. Um, Not every single detail is something that's autobiographical, but in terms of like family disharmony, um, they knew early on in the first season that they wanted to do a Thanksgiving episode and they were trying to come up, and they knew that they wanted to have Chandler be the character who is gonna be the kind of Thanksgiving Grinch who doesn't like Thanksgiving, and they couldn't come up with a reason why and two of the writers on the first season staff they were a a writing team they were hired together and so one of them looked at the other and said well you know we could just give him your story and and his writing partner said what are you talking about he said well don't you remember so it turned out that this this writer had been invited to his friend's parents house for thanksgiving when they were in college together and his his parents had chosen that weekend to tell him and his sister that they were getting divorced. And so Thanksgiving was kind of ruined. Um, And so that became Chandler's backstory about why he hates Thanksgiving. So I would say that, that that was kind of the vein that they were looking to tap in terms of figuring out ways to kind of give each of the characters a little bit of something that they had experienced, a story that they had heard and it wasn't always inevitably obvious what would work well. And so I think that's one of the reasons why they would be working there until 1 a.m. or 2 a.m., because sometimes that last thought that you had that pops in out of nowhere ends up becoming the thing that actually works in terms of writing the next episode of the show.
2: Are uh, comic actors typecasted do you think that Robert De Niro would have gotten the role in Deer Hunter
1: I do think that comic actors are typecast somewhat. I think that's why successful comic actors often strain to deliver in dramatic roles that, I think that part of it is this sense that comedy is always second class and second rate, right? If you think about what performances tend to win Oscars, what performances tend to get a certain kind of acclaim, it's usually kind of heavy, dark, dramatic roles. And so especially Um, at the time there was this sense that being on a hit TV comedy series was kind of like a double whammy right that not only were you in a comedy show so you weren't doing like really serious intense drama but you're also on TV and so if you look at the media coverage of friends from early on when it becomes a success such an inordinate amount of ink is spilled over this question of okay great you had like you the six actors have had this big success now, let's see how you do when you arrive in the major leagues, meaning making a movie. And that whole logic has kind of gone out the window. Like, we don't think that way anymore. Stars who have Oscars and are major performers are now clamoring to be on television. But at the time, there was this real sense of, okay, let's see which of these performers will be able to make it as, as a movie star. And so I, I think that that both of those things kind of work in tandem. and And... So I think that the stars of a show like Friends, they were afraid of being typecast both as television performers and not as movie stars because that was better. And then also, especially for some of them, there was a sense of, well, I'm a dramatic performer. So I think that someone like David Schwimmer uh, seems to be less interested post Friends in doing shows or working on stories that kind of have that similar comedic feel, in part because he, he sort of sees himself in a different light. Um, do
3: you think that as Jews, we look at films or sitcoms or whatever, that we project our Jewishness on some, or we like, um, we can figure it out before anybody else
1: does? I don't know if I'm explaining. Fig- figure out what? I guess I would say that the arc of television itself has a very Jewish flavor to it, that when television first starts in the early 1950s to be available to audiences, it's really only available in certain cities. It's available in places like New York, Boston, Baltimore, Los Angeles, like it's, and, and not only that, but to buy a television in 1952 cost something like $900. $900 in 1952, right? So we're talking about a kind of limited profile where really only people in a certain income bracket in certain cities were able to watch TV, which essentially meant that a huge portion of the early television audience was itself Jewish, which I think helps to explain why when you look at really, really early TV, it's very sophisticated, a lot of it. It's really funny, it's really clever. And by the time you get to the 1960s and, and television has become nationwide, buying a TV is much cheaper and it's essentially available everywhere in the country, television gets a lot worse. It get, Because it suddenly has a much more mass appeal, it has to appeal to a mass audience. And I guess the point that I'm making is that the question of... Jewish involvement in television is something that's there from the very, very beginning. Um, Not just in terms of the audiences, but also in terms of the creators. And so I think that the whole story of television, especially the whole story of television comedy, is very much wrapped up with a certain swath of Jewish performers and Jewish writers who make it their own early on. And I think that kind of fades out a little bit during this period of, of television becoming a mass medium? Well, now it becomes almost, I don't know
3: too many, where Jews are shown in a good light. You know, that you're watching something, and
1: I'll stop watching it because it's offensive to me. Like, what would be an example of that?
3: And all along I'm watching, I think it's hysterical, funny, 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 and then he's sitting there across from someone and the guy says to him, are you, uh," they're talking about bagels. He says, are you, uh," he says, am I what? And he says, are you, uh," he says, say it. I don't know, it's really hard for me to say. Are you Jewish? And you almost get this feeling, I've watched I think I'm in the third or fourth season. I took it that long. I had no idea other than they were very wealthy. They were had um, done some illegal things or fraud or, or he had been whatever it was with money. They moved him to this town called Schitt's Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, they now are living in a motel. The kids are beyond spoiled. And then you start putting this and it's like an aha uh-huh.
1: Yeah, I mean, the creators are Jewish. Uh, of
3: course,
1: and, oh, yeah, oh, they well, and his, his son and yeah. the daughter. Yeah. I, I guess what I would say to that is that I, my feeling is that good stories aren't necessarily about positive depictions, but about um, depictions that capture some of the particulars of a given subset of people. and so. You know, I'm particularly, in, I'm obviously particularly interested in, in depictions of Jews on television. And I think that one of the things that's happened is this sense of, we're gonna show stuff that's Jewish on TV, but we're also gonna pretend like it's not really Jewish, has faded away, right? So you have something like Seinfeld, which is extreme, an extremely Jewish show, but also kind of masks some of its characters. I think that that tendency has dissipated. And so instead, you have shows like Transparent and I think that Transparent is a good its a good example of a show that the characters are not role models, right? They're not wonderful people. They don't treat other people well, necessarily. They're not like poster children for any particular kind of positive behavior. At the same time, the show is very unambiguous about showing what being Jewish is. So there can be an entire episode that's about breaking the fast on Yom Kippur um, that doesn't really spend a lot of time explaining what anything is to anyone. It's just a, it's, it's a fact of life for these characters well, and this course, world. Yes. I mean, it's exactly. But I, I guess I, I'm for me personally, I'm less looking for positive role models and more just interested in ways in which the the spectrum of what kinds of stories can be told gets expanded. And I think that those shows are really interesting examples of ways in which Judaism is portrayed. On, on, I don't know if they're. I mean, I think that they're more part of a larger trend, which is to have challenging or complex characters be the stars of shows. That's not like um, past incarnations of television, where all the characters had to be positive or, or people that you liked. I think it's. I think that there's more of a trend these days towards characters that are themselves prickly or challenging or difficult or people that we don't like? Well, but plenty of them are. I mean, I don't think that Jews are a majority of of the characters on on these shows, but but it's it's more that these shows are part of a trend that includes characters of all different kinds of backgrounds who are similarly prickly or difficult, but allow the people who make these shows to depict different swaths of American life that in a, in a previous era where everything had to be more mainstream or more predicated to a, a common denominator wouldn't have been told. And so in that sense, I, I find there's a lot to appreciate about them.
3: Mm-hmm. Don't you think that because there is a lot of humor in, in Jewish humor that's enjoyable, that, that the, the writers and the producers of these shows look for, having some Jewish humor. Like the nanny, you know, yeah. the innocent Jewish stuff that comes out of her mouth. It is hysterical. And and it can't be insulting because it's funny. And it's, it's not negative, and it, it's, it's not negative. No. But but it but it appeals to even non Jews. Mm-hmm. It appeals to a large audience because it's funny.
1: Yeah. And I think as well, it's worth noting that even today, you know, a good chunk of the television industry and especially the writers in the television industry are themselves Jewish. And so, you know, when writers are given an opportunity to tell stories that are meaningful to them or that are autobiographical or that, that they have some connection to those stories are often Jewish. It doesn't mean that the majority of shows on TV are about Jews because they're not, but you know, I think it is somewhat reflective of the nature of who makes these shows, and and also of the kind of larger arc of comedy history in the United States and of television history, both of which are very much intertwined with Jewish history and Jewish culture.
4: Because we are offended by that, but it's true. So how do we grapple with that? I mean, how do we make sense of that? Of how we react to people that say that as being anti-Semitic, but it's true. And why do we say it's anti-Semitic?
1: Well, I think that's a tough question. I think that I would say that the word "run" is maybe doing a lot of work there. Right. That or to say. Or- right. So I, what I'm saying is that maybe there's a distinction between saying. Jews are very prevalent or very successful in Hollywood and Jews run Hollywood. Seem to me to be two different things, one of which is laudatory and one of which is maybe less laudatory. Um, I don't think that it would be factually correct to say that Jews run Hollywood. You know, If you look at who holds the positions of power in Hollywood, clearly there are a lot of Jews in those positions, but not a majority and definitely not the overwhelming abundance of them. Um, you know, I think it's like anything else. You can say the same thing in two different ways, and it can be praiseworthy or it can be an attempt to denigrate people. I think that acknowledging that Jews have had a tremendous amount of success in the world of culture is very real, um, and not just about television, but about the film industry, about literature, about popular music, about theater. Um, I think that it has a lot to do with being. Um, a minority group that was interested in finding ways and expressing itself, that was interested in outlets for creativity, um, that's tied up with a long heritage of being interested in the use of words. Um, I think that transforming that into some kind of conspiracy theory about you know, Jews secretly peddling their I don't know what, I don't know who, that's where it starts to become troubling. That's where I, you know, my Feelers would start to to go up, I think. But I think that that telling the story of Jewish involvement in popular culture, honestly, that that for me at least, that doesn't rub me the wrong way necessarily. I mean,
2: I'm think too, back to something you mentioned before. In the '90s, we were all watching the same thing. Now it's so fractured. How do we know that we, I assume, a lot of us like CNN too, whereas the people who are watching some other network maybe having a whole different set of shows. I mean, there's, what, 300 channels on your table? But you have four different. So I don't think we can assume that what we see is the media shows that have such a Jewish influence are, are hitting the same broad audiences as they were 20 years
1: ago. No, they're definitely not. Um, and that's not just true about the Jewish shows. It's true about any show. There's, there's I think that it's safe to assume that unless we're talking about the Super Bowl, um, there's re- or you know, maybe the Oscars. There's really not much that everyone is watching together. And so I-, I think that there's clearly a downside to that. right? We don't have the same kind of mass culture that we did where we can all feel comfortable that if I'm talking about something that I'm excited about that I was just watching or reading or thinking about, I know that most of you were doing the same thing at the same time. That doesn't really exist anymore. At the same time, it also allows for more room to breathe for some some kinds of art that wouldn't have existed before. So I mentioned Transparent. I think Transparent is a really good example of a show that just would never have existed 20 or 30 years ago. In part because of its subject matter, but even putting all of that to the side, just by virtue of it being a kind of niche story, it was never going to be the kind of show where you'd put it on NBC on Thursday night and 20 million people were gonna tune in to watch it. And so I think that 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 same fracturing that means that we don't kind of have a shared cultural language also means that sh- it, it redefines success for the people who make the decisions and pull the levers in terms of television. And so a show that can attract two million really, really dedicated, passionate viewers that love something is a huge success for certain cable networks and streaming platforms. Whereas if you were running NBC in 1995, and you put on a show and said, well, two million people really love this show, you'd be fired. I mean, that, that was not an acceptable strategy. And so I, I think that it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? It, there, there's an upside and a downside. I understand what Marsh is
5: saying about hoovering a
2: little bit when you see somebody Jewish, is that clear to you, for example, that it's that's true. But the one thing I've noticed as I've gone through my lifetime, maybe because I was raised here where Jews were a significant minority, there's an acceptance level now. I don't care if the Gentiles think that is a Jewish Christian, I don't care. But when you say it, it's not different. Our society has sort of, as small as we are, leveled itself out perhaps because of some of this stuff there's the negative she's talking about, which I understand. But I do see a more equal playing field, at least as far as certain things. Uh, Gentiles know what a Shiva is. That was unheard of when I was a child. And I think some of these things are perhaps positive.
1: Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's part of the, the cultural yeah. significance of some of these shows that we're talking about. So you mentioned Shiva. Curb Your Enthusiasm has an episode that takes place around sitting Shiva and the ethics of bringing Bill Buckner, the legendary Red Sox World Series hero into World Series GOAT, into the home of a Red Sox fan who's sitting Shiva. And I think one of the interesting things about that episode is it doesn't really explain to you what it is. You're supposed to know. If you don't, you can kind of figure it out from context. But I think that in the past, depictions of Jewish life often involved a great deal of explanation. Oh, this is this, this is that. Let me fill in the details for you. And I think that this newer swath of shows are less interested in doing that to their benefit. And I I think that they are willing to unabashedly depict some version of what Jewish life is like. And I think you're right. I think it makes it feel a little bit less alien and a little bit less mysterious.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming.